5, verses 13 through 20. Pew Bible, page 856. Is anyone among you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Thank you, Elena. A true story is told by a pastor who was on an airplane headed for New York many, many years ago. As they were on their descent, the pilots realized that the landing gear was not engaging. He messed around with the controls without success. And as the plane circled the landing field, the emergency crew moved into position on the runway. Passengers were told of each maneuver in that calm, unemotional voice pilots do so well. They were told to place their heads between their knees and grab their ankles just before impact. There were tears and a few cries of despair. It was one of those, I can't believe this is happening to me moments. And over the intercom was heard these words from the pilot's. We are beginning our final descent. At this moment, in accordance with international aviation codes established at Geneva, it is my obligation to inform you that if you believe in God, you should commence prayer. (laughs) Good advice. They made it safely. But amazing, isn't it? Push to the brink, back to the wall, only then does our society crack open a hint of a recognition that God may be there. And if you believe, you should commence prayer. Reminds me of the committee that was struggling to find a resolution on an issue. And one of the committee members suggested, why don't we stop and pray? Right then, another member piped up. Oh my, has it come to that? (laughs) Unfortunately, unfortunately, it only usually takes a crisis, some sort of affliction that brings us to our knees in prayer. James is about to land the plane and prayer seems to be the main thing on James's mind as he closes the book. We see the word pray or prayer used six times in eight verses. And in a book that was written to scattered believers who were undergoing suffering, it would have been surprising for James to not have mentioned prayer. As we saw last week, James's call to the people of God was, be patient, be patient. 
And as seen in those verses, verses 7 through 12, patience should not be viewed as a passive resignation that whatever will be, will be. No, biblical patience is active. It is to honor God with what we can control and trust God with what we can't control. And God has given us the incredible privilege of communing with the one who is in control. So James talks on prayer. But not only is the topic of this final section prayer, it serves to tie all that has gone before it together. You'll recall throughout this book, James has written with intense practicality. We, we like that, but at times we went, ouch. Made us a little uncomfortable. And James has talked about faith throughout this book. And, and when James speaks of faith, it is not this theoretical pie-in-the-sky kind of faith. It is a faith in action. And if you've been with us along the way in this book, we've been challenged to ask the question, is our faith real? Is our faith real? Is my faith real? To answer that, James provided us with a series of tests by which to measure it. There are actually 15 tests of a real faith from this one book. And I've included an insert in the bulletin for you to take with you to run through it again if you want to. But there it is. Those are the tests, the series of tests in which to measure our faith. Is it real? And as we come to the closing words of James, we are left with this question. It's a long question. I'll give it to you a couple of times. Because this is what it's at. This is where it's at this morning. Here's the question. How do the things James has been talking about How do the things James has been talking about become an active, living, breathing part of my life? And how do these things James has been talking about become an active, living, breathing part of our lives together? Let me say that again. How do the things James has been talking about become an active, living, breathing part of my life And how do these things become an active, living, breathing part of our lives together? See, the context of James's words here is mutuality. We can't read this section in an individualistic way. And what we should see in this final section about a faith that is real is that a faith that is real is a faith that lives in the power of mutual prayer and mutual concern. A faith that is real is a faith that lives in the power of mutual prayer and mutual concern. That's what he's talking about. I hope you have your Bibles open to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. As we close out the section, we come to the concluding verses this morning. And and, and I see this as if James puts an exclamation point at the end of all that he has said right here in 13 through 20. It's as if James comes to this section and and he says, I have spent five chapters speaking of, of what real faith looks like and it's time for you to get real. Get real. It is time to get real. 
And there's four points that go with that. Real about our troubles, pray. Real about the good things, praise. Real about our weaknesses and struggles, share. Real about our community, rescue. So it's real about our troubles, pray. Get real about the good things, praise. Get real about our weaknesses and struggles, share. And get real about community, rescue. So first of all, get real about our troubles, pray. Look with me at uh, verse 13. James asks a question in verse 13. He asks, is any of you in trouble? Is any of you in trouble? Well, what should that person do? What should that person do who's in trouble? Should he worry? Should, should he grumble? Should he call the church? Should he phone a friend? Is any of you in trouble? He should pray, it says. He should pray. Is that your first instinct? he draws his letter to a close, James has kind of gone full circle here. He ends where he began. He started by speaking of troubles, of trials, and the need to ask God for wisdom and ask believing. He ends with the same theme, suffering, troubles, that should drive us to ask God, should drive us to pray. Pray. Prayer is always the right response when in trouble. And the trouble he speaks to here is more than, than just spilling coffee on, on us on the way to work or, or having a bad hair day. It's more than that. It's the trouble, or better translated, suffering that comes from those who oppose us. It's the suffering that comes from being mistreated. The suffering that comes from a broken relationship. The suffering that comes from a loss of a loved one or as we face unfaithfulness in a marriage or the, or the sudden news that rocks your world. That's the suffering we're talking about. Are you experiencing trouble? In this world, we will have trouble, Jesus said. Job chapter 5, verse 7 puts it succinctly, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upwards. Trouble will come. We don't like it, but it is a part of life. We don't want it that way, but it is the fact of the matter. We're often like Lucy in the old Peanuts comic strip. She was complaining about her lousy life. And Charlie Brown is, is trying to cheer her up, as he normally does. And he says, into each life, some rain must fall, he says. Well, that didn't seem to help her at all. Then he thought of another saying. Just remember, life has its mountains and valleys, its ups and downs. To which Lucy replied, all I want is ups and ups and ups and ups. And that's true of us. That's all we want. We don't like this other stuff called life. We want to all be good. See, it's not surprising we have troubles. What is surprising is how little we pray. What is surprising is that prayer is not our first response to troubles. What is surprising is that we have this amazing access to the Almighty God, yet how little we are actually praying. We have it right here at our fingertips. Kind of like the statistic I saw recently. It said that the percentage of Americans that own running shoes but don't run is 87%. Why do we have them? 
Yet how many evangelical Christians who believe in prayer are actually praying? I have running shoes. The last statistic I saw, disturbing one, was that the average Christian spends only one minute a day in prayer. Pastors aren't doing much better. The average pastor spends five minutes. Wow. No wonder we're powerless. No wonder we're going around life uh, all ticked off and upset. Someone said, often the one grumbling most bitterly of his situation or of the people he must deal with is only confronting the results of his failure in prayer. It's true. Prayer is to be our constant companion. Prayer is not preparation for the work. It is the work. Mother Teresa said that that way. She said, our work is prayer. Why is prayer so difficult for the church? Well, one reason is because it's work. But another reason it's so difficult is because it is Satan's number one threat. Samuel Chadwick said it this way. He said, the one concern of the devil is to keep saints from prayer. He fears nothing from prayerless studies. He fears nothing from prayerless work. He fears nothing from prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. How do these things James has been talking about become an active, living, breathing part of my life and our lives together? Prayer. Prayer. Is this church the place for deep, agonizing prayer that describe my life? Prayer is to be our constant concern. Let's get real. Let's not pretend we don't need God. Get real about our troubles. Pray. Secondly, we need to get real about the good things. Praise. We need to get real about the good things. Praise. James goes on here. Middle of verse 13, he says, Is anyone happy? Or it could be translated cheerful or good spirits, at peace. Is anyone happy, cheerful, at peace? Well, what should he do? Keep quiet about it? Not make a big deal about it? No, it says he should burst out in song. Let him sing songs of praise. Praise is always the right response when good things are happening. Pray when in trouble. Praise when your heart is cheerful. But I ask you, which is harder for you? Isn't it sometimes the second part of this couplet that is more difficult than the first? I mean, trouble might drive me to my knees, commence prayer. But when things are going well, what happens? We forget God. Then the happy heart becomes a bad thing. If it turns you away from the Lord, then the good thing becomes a bad thing in your life. If you have reason to be happy, then get real. Don't spiritualize happy events. Don't downplay happy events. You know, there's something weird about Christians not being able to have a good time. There's just something weird about that to me. I mean, where do we ever get this idea that it is unspiritual to enjoy life and the good gifts God has given? Who should be happier, Christian or (laughs) non-Christian? To not enjoy life's not Christian. Have you noticed? Some people have a hard time enjoying life. 
They think it's strange that I get a little excited sometimes. <laughs> I get a little excited over a game of football, if you watch me. I get a little excited. And when I sing, I get a little excited. Hear how I sound? I sing anyway. I kind of live by the poster I saw. It said, just because I can't sing doesn't mean I won't sing. (laughs) I like that. That's my motto. I live by that. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Have you brought praise into the room today? The truth is, no matter what season of life we are in, we can praise. If praise is not in my life, then I do not know God or who God really is, and I, or I have ignored who God is. As we're going to see as we look into the book of Philippians starting next week in our sermon study, is that even in prison-like circumstances, there's cause for praise. Paul and Silas were, while sitting in prison, not because of any wrongful act on their part, but because of their loyalty to, to Christ, what did they do? They sang songs of praise. And do you suppose their choice of praising God had any, 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 any impact on the other prisoners? We know it did. The other prisoners, it says, were listening to them. I bet they were. This is unusual. You don't see this happening. And I wonder, perhaps, perhaps our unbelieving friends will be more inclined to listen to us when the circumstances in our lives give way to prayer and God-focused praise. Maybe they're not listening because we're not praising God. Get real about the troubles, loved ones. Get real about the good things. Prayer and praise, what a way to live. Need to go to the third thing, get real about our weaknesses or our struggles, share. James now expands this notion of prayer and how it's to be worked out in our lives. Verse 14, he says, is any of you sick? He asks another question. Is any of you sick? Well, what should that sick person do? Call the faith healers? Is that what he says? Send money to the TV evangelists? Try not to bother anyone? It says what? Call the elders of the church. Who makes the contact? The one who is sick. Now, this is more than a common cold or stomach bug. It seems to be referring to one who is bedridden. That's suggested in the picture of the elders praying over him. The sick person is in the bed, and the elders are gathered around the bed, standing over the sick person. What are the elders to do? Pray. What is the sick person to do? Share. Now, again, it's worth noting that the one who takes the initiative is the one who is sick. Now, I say this because sometimes there is this assumption on the part of the one who is sick that the elders should know that they're sick, that they need help, and they just wait for the elders to come calling on them, and usually it results in disappointment. Get real about those times in your life when you can't make it on your own and you need the prayers of others to see you through it. Now, while what is in view here may very well be only speaking of physical illness, there's a possibility that it goes beyond that to address a spiritual matter. The word for sick here can also be translated weak. That weakness may be due to some physical problem, but could also speak to a weariness of soul. 
kind of where I go with this. The word in verse 15 for sick one is the same word that's used in Hebrews 12, verse 3, which reads, Consider him who endures such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary, weary, sick one, and lose hearts. In times of trouble, in times of suffering, in times of adversity, that you have nothing left in you to overcome it. And I tend to think there's a strong implication that this is what James is getting at. It is tiring to face one battle after another. Some in this room know that feeling. It's like, when will it quit? Some in this room experienced that through 2013 and about wore you out. Do you know what it's like to be on the verge of wearing out spiritually? I mean, it can lead to physical issues, no disputing that, but to grow weary, to have no energy left to fight the next battle, to feel yourself wanting to quit, there's no worse feeling in the world. James's word to you, weary ones, share that. Share that. Don't just drop hints. Get real and share about it. It begins with the elders, but James will broaden that circle to involve others. We'll see that in a moment. But before I get to that, I need to address this matter of anointing and healing. So I don't, that's all you're going to be waiting for. So let's deal with this. Won't be long, but let's deal with this. The middle of verse 14 says, The elders are to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. What in the world is going on here? Well, some think that this is speaking of oil as medicinal in purpose. And so the elders are to come with means to help the physically sick person at the same time use their spiritual means of prayer. Both physical medicine, spiritual prayer. Now, while it's true that when you're sick, you ought to seek proper medical care, I don't believe that's what's going on here. I don't think you want me or any of the elders administering prescriptions to you if you're sick. I just don't think you want that. Just my guess. Oil was used also symbolically. I mean, it was also used in in the early church, and in some cases, some churches today still uh, sacramentally. I'm not going to get into that one. But oil was used symbolically as spiritual refreshment or symbolically to dedicate or consecrate something or someone to God. If we think of this sick person as more of one who is spiritually sick or weary, then this oil being symbolic of refreshment could very well fit. But whether this sick person is physically sick or spiritually weak, the elders, in coming alongside of that person, to pray and to rub on this person oil would be to consecrate this individual to the Lord. They're saying, I'm committing you to God. That's what that act would symbolize. There's indeed something very spiritual going on here. That's why the elders are called in. They're called to come to the one who is physically sick or spiritually weary or both. Their coming was for the purpose of dedicating this individual to the Lord's will and purpose for his or her life. It's an act of being involved in consecration of one of the sheep. See, the elder's main concern would be the person's soul, his or her spiritual health. 
That's why it says the person has sinned, he will be forgiven. He's not saying that all physical sickness is due to a person's unconfessed sin in his life. It isn't always the case, but it can be the case. That was happening in the church at Corinth. People were dying because of their flippant and casual observance of the Lord's table. And so this act of consecration by the elders when necessary includes the restoring, that's the picture, the restoring of the broken relationship between the individual and God. So get real about your personal struggles so you can be restored. Don't hide them. Don't pretend everything is okay. Because a faith that is real is a faith that lives in the power of mutual prayer and mutual concern. We're called to do life together, loved ones, and to help each other finish strong. That's why James says, verse 16, Therefore, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins to each other. So what I want you to do right now is to turn to your neighbor and start confessing your sins to him. Go ahead. Some of you are going, why did I come this week? Okay, that'd be a little awkward to say the least. But the question is, how well are we doing with this admonition? In the Protestant church, we have ignored this verse. It is true we are commanded to do this anywhere else in Scripture, but we shouldn't disregard this altogether. Because if we are to get real as James has called us to in this letter. And to have things become an active, living, breathing part of my life and our lives together, then this confessing ought to be practiced in some way. There is a benefit in applying this to our lives. First and foremost, I think it happens in small groups, but it goes beyond that. We need to be sharing our struggles with each other. Now, 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 be careful. Be careful not to go to an extreme and attempting to obey this by openly confessing your every thought, word, and struggle and to air out all your dirty laundry to anyone who will listen. Or maybe they don't even want to listen. You're still going to air it. See, there is within the sinful human heart a strange kind of delight in telling others bad things we have done. Equally true is that we can find a perverse ear that listens. So you have a mouth that speaks bad things, plus an ear that willingly listens to bad things, and you have a recipe for complete disaster. So we must be careful. Why are we sharing what we share? And why do we want others to share with us? Why? Kind of reminds me of, of three ministers who were out on a boat. And as they were sitting and relaxing on this boat, one of the ministers said, you know, we speak of the importance of confession, confession with our congregation. So we need to practice that ourselves right here in this boat, the three of us. Let's confess one of our struggles to each other. They all agreed. So one minister jumps in. He says, I struggle with an obsession with golf. There are days I blow off going to my office or going on that visit in order to play a round of golf. As a matter of fact, I can't wait to get back to shore to go play some golf right now. Second minister shared, I'll be honest, I have this obsession with cigars. Secretly, I take walks to the woods in order to smoke a cigar, and I I can't wait to get back to shore to light up a cigar. Third minister chimed in. He said, wow, well, I guess I'll share my struggle. I struggle with gossip, and I can't wait to get back to shore. (laughs) 
Now, confession makes us vulnerable. That's what could happen. That's why some of you said, I will never do it again. I shared it, and they shared it with someone else. They used it against me. I'm done. How do you listen to the faults of others? How? Is it so that you can go share that with others? Or does it drive you to pray? We ought to listen so we can pray, so we can help that person along in that struggle. If we don't, it will result in havoc. If we do, do, it will result in healing. See, what we must have before we share anything is a test of our own motives. And secondly, we must trust the relationship. We simply cannot tell everyone everything. We can say that to confess to God is always right, but not so in regards to each other. And we need to check our motives. We need to have a trust in the relationship. The principle is, is that there ought to be mutual concern for each other. Don't miss that. To be that kind of community, loved ones, is powerful. To have these things James has been talking about become an active, living, breathing part of my life and our lives together, we must find that safe place where we can confess our sins, we can share our struggles, and we can be real. Because we're pretending too much. Get real. Because a faith that is real is a faith that lives in the power of mutual prayer and mutual concern. And the power in praying is not only what the elders have, The elders play a special role, but prayer is never relegated to a certain group of people. Any one of us in this room, we can be praying effectively. For James says here, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. We all can do that with each other. I need to go to the last get real. It's get real about community rescue. Ties right into what I'm saying. Get real about community rescue. James, for this very reason, chose to use Elijah as an illustration of the power available to us when we get real with each other. Look at verse 17. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain. The earth produced its crops. Now, if we had time, and we don't, we would look at 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19. That's your homework assignment. You can look at 1 Kings 17 through 19. It is there that the Elijah the prophet spoke boldly in the name of the Lord and prophesied that the land of Israel would experience a severe drought. Now, where did Elijah get this idea about this drought coming from God? He didn't make it up. It was revealed to him that a drought was coming, and he then prayed earnestly. Why the drought on the people of God? Well, it was a judgment from the Lord because Israel had been led astray. They had wandered away from God under the influence of Ahab and Jezebel. File that away. We're coming back to that. And the people turned from the living God to worship Baal, which was known as the God of fertility and the God of the rain clouds. So Yahweh God, the true God, demonstrated through this drought that he was the one who had the power to give rain. He stopped rain from coming for three and a half years. Elijah prayed earnestly. And we might think that, sure, God would answer Elijah's prayer, but my prayer, I'm no one special. I'm no James. I'm no Elijah. I'm no Billy Graham. I'm no super saint. I'm just an ordinary man. Elijah is a man just like us, and that we too can pray effectively and powerfully. You don't have to look too far to see how Elijah was a man just like us. 
He had his ups. He had his downs. You might recall how Elijah went from boldly taking on the gods of Baal, challenging them to this contest, and then he was running from one woman. I'm just saying. He was. He experienced the power of God one minute and only a brief time later sunk to the all-time low of self-pity and arguably a depression of some sort. What Elijah did, anyone in this room can also do. What did Elijah do? He stood in the gap between a wandering sinful nation and a holy God. There's something powerful. Get this. There's something powerful that can happen as we stand in the gap between those who have wandered in the faith and a holy God. There's something powerful that can happen as we get real about the truth and, about, and be about the task of rescuing others. And James ends all of this with these two verses. He comes back to what this book is all about. Verse 19, my brothers, if any of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring him back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, the big idea of these last two verses really is the big idea of the entire book of James. It is to have a real faith, a faith that is a doer of the things he has talked about. Now, these are two verses that create some interpretive issues. I know. And someone will kind of shy away from it altogether. I've run out of time. I can't talk about this. (laughs) But I'm going to touch on it. Because these are verses that speak directly to what James has been talking about throughout this book. Don't take it out of its context. We ought to be about restoring the wanderer or rescuing the wanderer. As a profession of faith, as a real faith, that's what he's been talking about. And wanderers in this context are those who are not putting into practice the real faith James has been addressing throughout this book. Scripture is clear, loved ones, God The God who justifies, he also glorifies. Scripture is clear that God will preserve his people to the end. But how does he do this? Through the community. You and I need each other. Christianity was never meant to be lived in isolation. So when we see a brother or sister wandering from the faith, it is upon us to come alongside of them and bring them back. You can't just go, that's not my problem. Can't. There is a seriousness of these words that can't be overlooked. He's saying here, get real. Get real about your problems. Get real if you're starting to wander away. Get real about your happy events. Get real about your need for prayer. Get real about your sin. Get real by being involved in each other's lives. And get real by doing what James has been talking about and helping others to do those things as well. That's the capstone over all of this. If I were to unwrap what I believe is at the heart of James' final words here as he lands the plane, it would be this. Get real by doing what James has been writing about and see that others do them as well. That's what he's saying. Not just I do it for myself. I need to see that others are doing it also, putting the James into practice. Got to get away from this individualistic thinking. Ruining the church. It's terrible. 
I have responsibility to you. You have responsibility to me. We have responsibility to each other. To live out, James. Do. It's when we're practicing these things here in this passage that the church is at its best. This ought to be the place for joyful laughter and exuberant praise. This ought to be the place for gut-wrenching confession and healing, spiritual healing. This ought to be the place where we don't have to fake it but be real. This ought to be the place where prayer is a shared concern. Are we a praying church? Are we a singing church? Are we a healing church? Are we a rescuing church? Do we have a real faith? Are we helping each other live out the real faith? Are we? Are we getting into each other's lives and saying, how you doing? How's your soul? Don't just talk about this and that and the weather and the football game. Talk about how's your soul? How is it? Open up God's word lately. Spending more than one minute in prayer a day. Early African converts to Christianity were earnest and regular in private devotions. Each one reportedly had a separate spot in the thicket where he would pour out his heart to God. He would go in the thicket, and each one had their little spot, and they would pour out their heart to God. And over time, the paths to these places became well-worn. As a result... If one of these believers began to neglect that time, that time of prayer, that time in their path, pouring out to God, it would soon be apparent to others. And they would kindly remind the negligent one, brother, the grass grows on your path. (laughs) The grass grows on your path. Wow. Think if we did that for each other in a kind, loving, trusting relationship way, Grass grows on your path. I need people to say it to me. I'm not about that. We need to be saying it to each other and help each other finish strong and live out the book of James. That's the challenge. Let's pray. God, I pray we we grab some of this this morning. We took something to heart out of this. The words on your page came to life for us this morning. And as James has been harping on all through the book, that we're doers of your word, not just, oh, that was nice. Oh, yeah, I see that. Or I disagree with that interpretation. How about we say, How can I live this out right now? Show us that. Guide us in that. And we'll be the church that you want us to be and helping others finish strong. For your glory and for your honor, in Jesus' name, amen. Change the last hymn. I'm gonna sing one verse of... um